Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analysing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. And today we're looking at chapters 5, 6 and 7 of Allegiant. So where we left off, the society is picking up the pieces after the last, I don't know, uprising? Is that what we're calling it? There's a, there was a factionless uprising. Evelyn's taken power. She's made them all wear different clothes. You know how everyone used to be color coordinated for their factions. Now Evelyn said, cut that shit out. You got to mix it up. I want people to have choice. God damn it. So that's why I'm going to make them all wear a certain type of clothes and not let them do certain things because free will is important. So you'll do what I say. Triss has evaded any repercussions for her actions in the, I don't know, the uprising, uh, because she was faking under truth serum. And so she was able to lie. And that seemingly has gotten her friends off the hook as well. Although I remember last book, I was thinking about it. There was that truth serum that only worked on, or well, that in particular worked on divergent people. Candor had that technology and maybe they weren't sharing it with the factionless apparently because they have never heard of this other truth serum that works. I don't know. I'm so sick of serums. I'm so sick of serums. I don't know. We've got a whole book ahead of us. that's just going to be serum this, serum that, but I'm sick of it. Do you guys say serum or serum? I'm always self-conscious about that. If I say the wrong one, I apologize. Okay, let's get into it. So Triss has set her alarm for 10 o'clock that night. I guess she's going to bed in the middle of the day or something and she's set an alarm for 10 p.m. because that's when she's going to go and meet Four for their little secret rendezvous because Four's meant to be broken up with her. So it's, it's got to be under the cover of darkness, I guess. And so she falls asleep straight away, but she's that annoying person in a hostel. Like, have you ever stayed at a hostel and there's this annoying person where the alarm doesn't wake her up. So it just keeps beeping, 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 beeping. And then she said someone across the room was angry and was like, shut the hell up, turn off your alarm. And that woke her up. So the alarm didn't wake her up. Everyone yelling at her because she's being that annoying girl that woke her up. And so she's like, fine, fine. And so then she just gets out of bed and walks downstairs. I would have thought, you know, she's trying to line up a hot date tonight. She's just had a three hour or so nap. You'd maybe want to go to the bathroom, splash a bit of water on your face, maybe spritz some deodorant under your armpits. But no, she's not really that bothered about cleanliness and hygiene. So she just goes straight downstairs. And so she says there's a cool air that wakes her up. She pulls down her sleeves to keep warm. She says summer is finally ending. She says that like we know. Has it been summer the past three books and I've not noticed? 
has it been a notoriously hot and long summer? Like this is the first time the weather's really coming into it, but now we're having a cool snap and that's important for us to know. And so there were some people milling about the entrance of the erudite headquarters. I'm guessing like security or something, but she just manages to get right past them. She says, no one noticed me creeping across Michigan Avenue. There are some advantages to being small. So she's short and she thinks that that's why she's invisible to people. I think people can still see you even if you're short. I don't think you're, you're getting away from them just because you're short. If you're a few inches taller, I don't think you would have been caught. They're obviously not looking. Then she sees Tobias sitting in the middle of the lawn and he's wearing mixed faction colors. Get this, a gray t-shirt, blue jeans, and a black sweatshirt. So, oh my God. Oh, so colorful. Gray shirt, blue jeans, and a black sweatshirt. That's what I wear on a fancy night out. And it's like, oh my God, he's in, he's in mixed colors. He's in mixed colors, everybody. He's a veritable rainbow walking down Michigan Ave. Gray, blue, and black. Oh, transgressive. There's that new uniform working a treat. So she goes up to him and she goes, how did I go? With the fake confession, truth serum serum thing. And he's like, yeah, you're pretty good. Evelyn still hates you, but Christina and Kara have been released without questioning. So, okay. Seems like an oversight on Evelyn's part. So then he pulls her forward for a kiss. And he says, come on, I've got a plan for this evening. And he's like, yeah, I realized we've never been on an actual date. And so she's like, oh, wow, okay. I mean, we have been busy. There's been simulations. We've been getting shot. You tried to kill me under a simulation. I volunteered for myself to be killed to save some people from being in a simulation. A lot of simulation stuff's been happening and we've never had a date. And so, I don't know, I'm not that familiar with Chicago geography. Like they've referenced the Hancock building. Like we know it's taking place in like modern-ish day Chicago. There was that Ferris wheel and everything. But she seems to be alluding towards a mammoth metal structure at the end of the lawn at, the, I don't know, this park on Michigan Ave, which is where I thought the big bean thing was, but I don't think she's talking about the bean, the cloud gate thingy. She just keeps describing it as a metal structure. And she says, it's really a stage and arcing above it are massive metal plates that curl in different directions, like an exploding aluminum can. I, I'm stumped on what the hell this is. Is it a st- sculpture? Well, I know she said stage, but what are these weird little metal plate thingies? She says they walk around one of the plates on the right side to the back of the stage, which rises at an angle from the ground. There, metal beams support the plates from behind. So then Tobias gets her to climb up on one of the beams and she is reminded of the Ferris wheel, which was one of the first things they've ever done together. And so he's getting her to climb this metal structure, which seems a bit demanding because, I mean, she's recovering from a bullet wound to her shoulder. And she's even like, yeah, my shoulder's still sore, but I I managed to get up there all right. And so then Tobias climbs to a spot where two metal plates meet in a V, leaving enough room for two people to sit. And so he scoots back, wedging himself between the two plates and reaches for her waist so that she can sit there with him. What the fuck are they sitting on? What's wrong with a picnic on the ground? I get that he wants to be incognito, but did he have to go up the top of this metal plate structure with all these beams? What the fuck is he sitting on? It's an abandoned city. It's crumbling. There are so many places that they can go. And yet he's going to this structure opposite the erudite headquarters. Like, I, I, I really don't think you're being that discreet. But my point is, I don't know what this is. If it's 
a Chicago landmark, which I suspect it might be, like somebody please send me a pic. You know what? I've decided not to outsource my homework to you guys. I'm presenting the podcast. So I, I did Google it. So it's called the J Pritzker Pavilion and it's in Millennium Park. And I, I guess it's an outdoor amphitheater, which does not look comfortable. I'm looking at the photos. Please, guys, type this into your Google search bar. J Pritzker Pavilion. It looks dangerous. It looks uncomfortable. It's the worst place I'd pick for a picnic. And yet here we are, they're having a picnic. And so he takes a blanket out of his backpack and two plastic cups. And he's also got some drinks. He's got a non-alcoholic and an alcoholic option. He's like, do you want a fuzzy head or a clear one? And she's like, yeah, let's have a, a clear one because we're in the middle of like a war. We need to talk strategy about how we're going to escape this locked city. And he's like, okay, okay, here's some, I don't know, soda water or something. He says, I stole it from the Erudite Kitchens. Apparently it's delicious. And then they have a sip of it. And it's sweet as syrup and lemon flavored and makes her cringe. And she's like, oh, it's, it's disgusting. So yeah, great picnic so far for. So then Tobias says, okay, I get it. So I understand why you worked with Marcus and why you felt you couldn't tell me, but, and she goes, I know you're angry. I lied to you a lot. And he's like, yeah, I know. And it's like, it's not even just the Marcus thing. I'm also still annoyed at that time that you volunteered to be killed at the Erudite headquarters. That's still pretty raw with me. I'm still not quite happy. And she goes, yeah, I know, right? She says, I used to think about giving my life for things, but I didn't understand what giving your life really was until right there with it about to be taken from me. So I guess she's learned her lesson. And yet, spoiler alert, skip ahead. 15 seconds if you're not interested in spoilers. I think she dies at the end of the book by sacrificing herself. I think that's what happens. And I think that's the only reason we have the four POV chapters because he's going to narrate her death, perhaps. That's my hunch. And again, it's not because I'm a genius that I have that hunch. It's because it's a book that's been published like 10 years ago and spoilers exist. Okay, so they're sort of having an open dialogue She starts saying, I know now that I want to live. I want to be honest with you, but I struggle. She says, sometimes you don't trust me. Sometimes you're condescending. She didn't like when he was talking to her like a child, blah, blah, blah. There's all this pent up resentment. She was saying what she needed from him after she shot her best friend, Will, was patience and kindness, not for him to be yelling at her and keeping her out of plans. And he's like, well, I didn't want to burden you. And she's like, so I'm not a strong person, am I? And he's like, oh God, I, I know you're a strong person. Can you please chill out with that one? She always gets quite triggered by people sort of suggesting that she's not strong. And yet since she graduated Dauntless, I don't think anyone's ever suggested that she's not a strong person. Even after like the first couple of weeks of Dauntless, they were like, well, you've got spunk kid. Like they've all sort of acknowledged that in her, but she's still a bit sensitive about it. She's a bit insecure. So eventually she says, I'm sorry, I lied to you. I really am. And he goes, well, I didn't mean to make you feel like I didn't respect you, which isn't an apology. She's actually saying the sorry word. And he's like, well, I didn't mean to do things that made you feel bad. So then she leans back against this hard metal plate and just enjoys the ambiance. She's stargazing. Whereas I think she's probably feeling very uncomfortable. So then she sort of decides to not be angry. She says, I now feel relief. It isn't usually that easy for me to let go of anger, but the past few weeks have been strange for both of us and I am happy to release the feelings I've been holding onto. 
the anger and the fear that he hates me and the guilt from working with his father behind his back. Good, great, I'd lo- I love a clean slate. And then he's like, this drink's pretty shit. And she's like, yeah, I don't know. Then they joke about how abnegation, they never got any treats. And Four says, sometimes I think I believe everything they taught us, but obviously not since I'm sitting here holding your hand right now without having married you first. And she's like, oh yeah, what do the Dauntless say about sex before marriage? And he's like, they say do it, but use protection. And she's like, okay. Which I think is just a segue into them banging on the top of this Jay Pritzker amphitheater. Veronica Roth doesn't actually say they have sex, but it sort of sounds like they have the most uncomfortable sex I've ever read because he's pressing his hands up against the metal plate and leaning forward on his knees. He's trying to kiss her. They're on random discs and beams and poles. I thought they'd already had sex, but maybe that was just in the movie because she's feeling a little bit nervous that he's not going to like what she's putting down. And then she realizes that she's not kissing him back and then it must be like him kissing a statue. So she's like, oh, well, I better react. Then he pops his top off and she's like, oh, well, I do enjoy that. So she presses herself into him and she says his breaths, his breaths come faster and so do mine. And I taste the lemon syrup fuzz we just drank and I smell the wind on his skin. Now, I'm sorry, but if you're smelling the wind, I doubt it's, it's, it's on his skin. Aren't you just smelling the wind? I uh, don't understand that. And she's like, all I want is more. So she's really getting into it. Uh, so he's wrapping his arms around her waist and she's drinking in the smoothness of his skin. And she says she's relaxed. Again, I feel like she's probably very uncomfortable sitting on the roof of the J. Pritzker pavilion, the most uncomfortable structure in the world. And so here's when she sort of segues into the more vague language. She just says she's sighing into his ear when he pulls me against him, burying his face in the side of her neck so that he can kiss me there. And so that's why it's unclear. I don't know. Maybe they didn't have sex. Maybe they just made out a little bit. But then the chapter ends and we go to chapter six and we're in Tobias's POV and he's saying something's brewing. I can feel it in the air. I can smell the wind on my skin. He's having breakfast in the cafeteria and he can sense that something's happening. And okay, he acts like it's all instinct. This is all like, oh, a gut feeling like, oh, I can sense something's gonna happen. There's tension in the air. I can just feel it. And then he tells us yesterday when he left Evelyn's office, He eavesdropped on her next meeting and he heard that there was going to be a demonstration. So, okay, great instincts for you really predicted that something was going to happen. Like you heard it. So he heard that there's going to be a demonstration. He's kind of worried that his mum didn't tell him because it indicates that she might not trust him fully. So he thinks I need to do a better job pretending to be her right hand man. And so he's sitting eating breakfast and he can see like someone like watching the clock. And he's like, that's more proof that my gut feeling that something is going to happen. That's, that's proof that it's going to come true. It's like, bitch, you heard it. You heard her talking about it. And then he hears shouts. The girl that was looking at the clock, she gets up. Everyone starts rushing towards the door and he's, he's right behind them. They go through the lobby of the Erudite headquarters where the portrait of Janine Matthews still lies in shreds on the floor. Okay, clean it up. Clean it up. I get that it might be a symbol, but are we just going to leave the portrait of Janine on the floor? Like forever? I know the factionless were the cleaners, so maybe they're on strike and just refusing to, to do their cleaning jobs now that they've moved up in the world. Although the dead bodies have seemingly been cleaned up, so I don't know why someone who was 
wiping up all the blood. She couldn't have been like, oh, let me just scooch that little torn up portrait and throw that in the trash. I don't know. Very confusing. Anyway, so they're moving out onto the streets. They're in the middle of Michigan Avenue and he hears someone shout death to the factions. And then that becomes a chant. And then he sees that they're gathered around the huge man-sized faction bowls. I love that she's got to describe them as man-sized because they're that big. Remember they had to, at the choosing ceremony, go up to these five bowls. They were each filled with a different like symbolic item. And then they had to cut their hand and drop their blood into whatever faction bowl they decide. And even though there was all this pomp and ceremony and like it's called a choosing ceremony, if anyone chose differently than what was expected, there'd be an uproar. So the bowls have heavy meaning. I don't know how they got transported here because he even says they're still filled with their symbolic items. So they've got coal, glass, stone, earth, and water. How did the giant man-sized bowls make it all the way out to Michigan Avenue get transported all that way and not spill their contents? Like, especially the water. The water wasn't schlopping around. How did they get there? Did they get there and then they put the symbolic items back in, whoever was running this demonstration? What are the logistics of these giant man-sized bowls moving up and down Chicago? Where do the bowls get stored? I thought maybe they'd just always be in that room that they were in. But the fact that they're able to move around implies to me that they're portable, but clearly they're not portable. They're giant man-sized bowls. Like, that's not something you can run and jump onto a train with. How did they get there? And so Edward stands there and he's got a sledgehammer above his head and he's going to town, smashing the bowls and their symbolic items. I don't know how he's going to go smashing the water, but he's doing a good job of the glass and he's also smashing up the coal. And now Edward, he was that guy that was in Dauntless with Triss and then Peter stabbed him in the eye with a butter knife. And so then he became factionless and he was hanging out with Evelyn. So it's nice to see that he's thriving with the new leadership responsibilities. And Four is like really annoyed. He's like, oh my God, don't do it. Don't you dare smash up that bowl full of coal. Because for him, that was his symbol of his first act of defiance against his abusive father. So it means a lot to him, that dauntless bowl. Apparently, I mean, I'm not buying that, but apparently he's got this really strong attachment to this bowl that he's not brought up for the past two books. And so he says the crowd is swelling with the factionless and also with people from every form of faction. And then he says, oh, there's an erudite man, his faction still indicated by his neatly parted hair. And he bursts free of the crowd trying to stop Edward. We've given everyone new clothes, but apparently if your hair is parted, you're erudite. When they did the faction system, when they designed this, They said five different factions, different personality traits, different clothes. They sit them down and say, okay, you can have this hairstyle. You can have this hairstyle. You guys can have tattoos. We're going to corner the market on parted hair. No one else can do parted hair. And Erudite also claimed glasses as well. Remember, no one else, no one else in any other faction could wear glasses or parted hair. Lest you be labeled an Erudite if you're actually an Amity. That'd be, that'd be tragic. So there's all these signifiers. So does it really matter what clothes they're fucking wearing now, Evelyn, if they're still recognizable as being factioned because of their haircuts? This is so stupid. Anyway, so this parted hair guy, he must be so riled up. He's like, don't you dare break those symbolic bowls. I draw the line at you sledgehammering these bowls. 
And so he thinks he can stop the crazy one-eyed guy swinging a sledgehammer. And he tries to, to pull back the sledgehammer. But Edward's like, I can take you, mate. But erudite guy, he's struggling. He's turning purple. Four can see Triss over the way. And she's like gonna run and help the erudite guy, presumably, but Christina stops her. And so Edward rips the sledgehammer out of the erudite guy's hands, smacks the erudite guy in the shoulder, full force, cracking his bones. And then the erudite guy's screaming his head off. I don't know what his game plan was. I guess he was just in so incensed by someone destroying the ceremonial bowls. Like I get that symbols matter, blah, blah, fucking blah. But these are ceremonial man-sized bowls filled with coal and glass and water. I'm sorry. Have these people not seen actual rebellions? Their headquarters was stormed a couple of days ago. Their leader died and her post is torn to shreds on the ground, still not being cleaned up. And this is what does it? This is what does it? This is what sets him off? All right, pop off, pop off erudite guy with the parted hair. So erudite guy, he's on the floor and Four's thinking, what do I do? Do I run to that guy? Do I run to Edward, try and stop him? Or do I run to Triss? I don't know what to do, I can't think. And it's like, go to your girlfriend and don't try and stop Edward. You're meant to be pretending that you're on Edward's side. So there's a bit of chaos happening. Everyone's running around. Everyone's so crazed over these ceremonial man-sized bowls. Someone's elbow whacks Triss in the face. (laughs) Christina's shoving that person who whacked her. Then a gun goes off. Once, twice, three times. So the crowd scatters. He's looking around to find out who shot the gun. I mean, do we think it was Evelyn? Or like Evelyn's cronies? I think it was Evelyn's cronies. She, She wants the drama. She is the drama. And fear and infighting can only help her. So she's, she's probably loving it. So Four's looking around trying to figure out who's been shot. He sees Triss and Christina crouch next to the erudite man with the shattered shoulder. I love that he describes it as the erudite man with the shattered shoulder. We know what man you're talking about. I don't think you're talking about a different erudite man. I know you're talking about the one that was just in this altercation. And he's been trampled in all of the firestorm of the guns. He's been trampled. And he says his combed erudite hair is tussled. He isn't moving. It's like, oh no, how do you, how could you possibly recognize him anymore? With his hair all tussled, who knows what faction he belongs to? This is May Day. And also Edward lies in a pool of his own blood. The bullet got him in the gut. And he suspects that the bullets were meant for Edward and Edward alone. So who knows who shot the gun? Maybe it was the Allegiant. Remember, because there's a, a, a secret society of Allegiant people who are allied to the faction system. So maybe erudite guy with the glasses and the tussled hair, maybe he was an allegiant. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And maybe one of his little allegiant buddies killed Edward. Maybe it wasn't Evelyn. Who knows? Edward seems to be still alive. So Fawz like, we got to get him to the hospital. Let's go. What about that guy? And Triss is like, he did. So he died of a shattered shoulder and also the trampling and the hair tussling. So he's, he's gone. Rest in peace. We hardly knew ye erudite guy with the parted hair. And Fawz like, oh, geez. He closes his eyes. He says, the faction bowls are printed on my eyelids, tipped on their sides, their contents in a pile on the street. The symbols of her old way of life destroyed, a man dead, others injured, and for what? He seems to be more upset about the bowls than the guy that actually died. And he's like, this is all Evelyn's fault. She had this vision of a city where factions are wrenched away from people against their will. She wanted us to have more than five choices. Well, now we have none. And so then he's like, that's it. That's it. I knew for sure then that I can't be her ally and I never could have. He's like, that does it. That does it. I was okay with the uprising, with her killing people, taking over people by force, locking up my girlfriend for days in a cell and then interrogating her. I was fine with all that, that the balls are the last straw. So Triss says to Four, we have to go. And Four's thinking, she's not talking about the street, she's talking about the city. And he's like, yeah, we have to go. So it seems like finally they're in agreement that they gotta leave the city. That's great. They go inside. They're in the makeshift hospital at the Erudite headquarters. I guess they were dragging Edward back, but Edward, surprise, surprise, doesn't make it. He's thinking that Evelyn must have planned the demonstration or she wouldn't have known about it the day before. Oh, you don't think. Oh, you don't think. Again, he keeps relying on this eavesdropped conversation being like, I suspect Evelyn knew all along. I suspect she maybe knew about it because she planned it. It's like, da-da-doi, da-da-doi. He thinks that she must have known tensions would get high, people would get hurt, but she did it anyway. Making a big statement about the factions was more important to her than safety or the potential loss of lives. And he says, I don't know why that surprises me. I like, I don't know either. Then Evelyn does see him. She runs over and she's worried about him. And he's like, oh, she's worried about me. That must mean she loves me. It's like, oh my God, this again. Just leave the city. Just leave the city. I'm sick of this mummy drama. 
And then he's worried that she would be a bit upset because Edward died. And that was like her sort of surrogate son. I don't know. He says, my mother embraced Edward after he defected from Dauntless. She must have taught him to be a warrior again after the loss of his eye. I don't know how long this was, but I think it was only probably a couple of weeks. I don't know, but she's crying. And he's like, I didn't know that they were so close, but they must have been close. And he's like, well, do you want to um, go, and, go and see him? And she goes, no, nah, I've seen what dead bodies look like. <laughs> so, yeah, she's really torn up. <laughs> he says, you could go in and see him if you want. And she goes, I know what dead bodies look like. <laughs> oh, she's cold. Oh, that really tickled me. He was, he was so worried for paragraphs going on about it. Oh, surrogate son. They must've been so close and factionless together. Do you want to go see him and say goodbye? She's like, nah, <laughs> that gets me, that gets me. Uh, so rest in peace, Edward. So then we go to the next chapter, chapter seven, which is narrated by Triss. She's talking to Christina, who's playing with a bit of coal from the Dauntless Choosing Ceremony Bowl. And Christina says, I didn't want to really bring this up, but I can't stop thinking about it. Uh, did you know that out of the 10 transfer initiates we started with, only six are still alive? And I think she's trying to say that they're like, that's a huge, like crazy percentage. But considering that one of them died jumping off the train on the way to Dauntless headquarters, like I'm, I'm not that shocked. I'm actually a little surprised 60% are still alive. Not bad considering that girl died on her first day. Well, actually her first few minutes as a Dauntless. She fell off the building and everyone went, oh, well, she wasn't cut out for Dauntless. <laughs> so they're heading to the Hancock building for some reason. She thinks about how Edward is now dead, how he was stabbed in the eye. He left the Dauntless compound with Myra. And then we get like a type five recap of Myra. Triss is all like, oh, I never really talked with Myra much, but I haven't seen her since I've rejoined with the factionless. I don't know whatever happened with Myra. Myra, Myra, Myra. We're just talking about Myra a lot. And I'm thinking Myra might make an appearance soon because Veronica Roth's really trying to be like, hey, remember Myra? And no, I didn't. So thanks for the reminder. I hope this becomes important because otherwise, why why am I talking about Myra? So Christina and Triss, they get to the Hancock building Uriah got there early to turn on the generator so the elevator now works so they can take the elevator to the roof. The, the logistics of this floor me. Why is there a generator just for this one building? Just so they can go zip lining every now and then? What? What? And so Tris goes, oh, have you ever been to the Hancock building before? And Christina goes, no, not inside, I mean. It's like, well, yeah, that's what, that's what she asked. She goes, because I didn't go ziplining, remember? Like, okay, saw spot much, Christina? You didn't get to go ziplining. And Triss is like, okay, well, you should go ziplining before we leave. You should do that. And she's like, yeah, maybe I will. Like, what? Why are we fighting about the zipline? And then Christina says sometimes she gets where Evelyn's coming from, that maybe it is a good idea to stay put and clean up the mess before moving on. And Triss says, have you talked to your parents about it? And she goes, nah. Nah, I haven't, because they're in Canada and I'm here, bitch. Like, of course I haven't talked to my parents about it. But because they're Canada, they just want her to live an honest life. So who knows what they'll do? I guess they're just debating whether or not they should leave the city. In a roundabout way, we're talking about that. And Tris says, will your parents be okay with you leaving the city? And she says, well, they're okay with me picking another faction, so I don't think they'd give two shits, doubt. 
Why is Tris harping on the parents thing? What's she bringing that up for? So then they get to the top of the elevator and they just enjoy the view. Uriah and Zeke are there throwing pebbles off the roof, which I, I don't know, seems dangerous. I know it's a crumbling abandoned city, but someone might be down there that you might be hitting. And so Uriah and Zeke say, hey, in unison, when they spot her and Christina. And so Christina goes, what are you guys, related or something? And they both laugh. Is that just a joke about them saying this, saying hello at the same time, which isn't that crazy? Or are they actually related? I think they might actually be brothers. So if they are brothers, what's so fucking funny about that? Christina, I, t- I don't get the humor in it. I don't get it. Hey, oh, what are you guys related or something? Get it? Cause you're brothers and you just said, hey, at the same time. Is it crazy to say hello at a certain point of time when you see people? And then Tris says, there are no slings on the roof for the zip line. And that's not why we came. Okay, well, you just, you just told Christina that she should go zip lining. And now she's like, we're not here to zip line. Like, okay, bait and switch. I bet Christina's like, oh, I only uh, signed up to come because I thought I could zip line, but uh, okay, thanks. Thanks for tricking me into coming to the top of the Hancock building, a place that I've never been to before. Well, inside before. And Tris says, I don't know why the others came but I wanted to be up high to see as far as I could. I bet they came because you promised them a zip line. So she just wants to go up to the top of the building to visualize leaving the city, even though they've been to the fence before. She's lived in the Amity compound, which I think was outside of the city. But she's like, I just needed a good view of, of the nothing on the horizon to help with my thoughts, to help solidify my hunch that I want to leave the city. And so Zeke says, uh, what if uh, there's nothing else out there? What if the people who put us in here are all dead? What if there's nothing out there? Which is a great point. And Tris says, I shiver. I had never thought of that before. What? What? She's never thought that maybe everyone else is dead. She had that video from her ancestor saying that the world was being destroyed in some catastrophe. The outside world was dependent on this faction system going well, which, you know, spoiler alert, it's not been Triss. And then she spent like five days in a cell ruminating on that and never once thought that maybe everyone else was already dead, that there was nothing on the outside. She'd never thought of that. And she was meant to be apt for for erudite. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And she says, you know what? It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what's out there. We have to go and see for ourselves and then we'll deal with it once we have. And then they just stood there. Zeke, Uriah, Christian and her just staring out from the top of the Hancock building. And then I guess they have to catch the elevator down because no one's ziplining. Then she says it's the next day and Evelyn's standing among the pieces of Janine Matthews portrait in the lobby. And she's announcing a new set of rules. Pick up the portrait, people. I'm starting to think it's a tripping hazard and some guy just got trampled. So maybe we should be more cognizant and careful with the trip hazards. She says, everyone's there listening to what Evelyn had to say with soldiers watching guard. Evelyn says, yesterday's events made it clear that we are no longer able to trust each other. We will be introducing more structure into everyone's lives until our situation is more stable. The first of these measures is a curfew. So the curfew is between nine at night to eight in the morning and guards will be patrolling the streets. So clearly she planned this demonstration and may have killed Edward just for this to happen. Although she could have done it anyway. I mean, you're the supreme ruler. You can just make these decisions without the symbolic demonstration and the murder of your surrogate son. 
And so Tris scoffs at the curfew. She's like, yeah, right. I'm short so I can sneak out whenever I want because people can't see me because I'm small. So she snorts and Christina elbows her in the side and like touches her finger to the lips in like the shush gesture because she doesn't want to be caught. And like, okay, but it's not very discreet to do a, a shush gesture at someone who's snorting. You sort of made that worse, Christina. And Tori, former leader of Dauntless, person who was ousted by Evelyn, killed Janine Matthews, used to be a tattoo artist moonlighting as an aptitude test conductor. She is also standing there sneering, watching Evelyn. I thought she would have been locked up still. I get how Tris got out of it, but uh, why is Tori just Roman free? Like Evelyn, if you're going to be a dictator, you, you kill the person who last assassinated the last dictator. Like not to talk about the Hunger Games, but that's where that Alma Coyne went wrong because she was all like thinking that she had the Mockingjay on side. And she's like, oh, I'll just act like a tyrant. And this person who hates tyrants will kill the tyrant for me. And it's like, no, she's going to kill you, Alma. Maybe I should do the Hunger Games next. What do you guys think of that? I don't know. Hunger Games is kind of having a moment at the moment with the new movie coming out of, the, of that ballad of beetles and songbirds and snakes and whatever the crap beetle the bard shit that was. Have you guys read that one? Ugh, it was so dreadful, but I did love every second of it. So maybe I'll cover the Hunger Games soon. I don't know. Let me know your thoughts. Back to Allegiant. So Tori's just watching. Evelyn says, starting from today, everyone will begin to learn the jobs that the factionalists have done for as long as we can remember. Then everyone will do all those jobs in a rotation, as well as the jobs that they used to do in their other factions. So I, I do think that's why Janine Matthews's torn up portrait is still on the ground because the factionless who were factionless before are sort of boycotting the new jobs because they know that there's going to be a new cleaning roster, a new schedule of all the menial tasks to be shared amongst everyone. And so they're probably thinking, I'm going to let these guys do it. I'm not volunteering to clean up the poster. I'll get everyone else to do it when we're on our new roster. It's like a share house with people leaving the dirty fry pan in the sink for like five weeks. No one wants to own up to ripping the poster. No one wants to clean it up. And it's just going to be left there forever. She says the factions have divided us, but now we will be united now and forever. And Triss is like, mm, like to see that happen, but I doubt it will considering someone just killed Edward. She thinks it was a group of people who rose up against Edward, AKA the Allegiant, who she doesn't know exists yet, but she's already assuming that there is a sort of Allegiant group out there. Speaking of the Allegiant, so she starts walking back to the dormitory. She takes the stairs because she wants to avoid most people. And then she sees a candor guy who's dressed in black and white from head to toe, still the candor colors, getting beaten the shit out of him by a bunch of factionless because he's breaking the uniform dress code. So Triss is like, hey, stop that. Get, stop that. And so this girl who's kicking the candor boy, she says he's in violation of the dress code. I'm well within my rights and I don't take orders from faction lovers. She says with her eyes on the ink creeping over Triss's collarbone. And it's like, okay, I get that Triss can wear other clothes, but is she, is she meant to get her tattoos removed to prove that she's factionless? Like what, what is she meant to do here? What are any of the Dauntless meant to do here? They've got tattoos. The erudite people have parted hair. These are things that can't be changed so easily. Are they meant to be punished? And so one of the other boys who's beaten up this candy guy, he says, oh, that's the prior video girl. And so the girl that's beaten up the candy boy, she looks at her unimpressed and she sneers and she goes, so, which remember we said is a trigger for Tris when people think that she's not intimidating. 
or physical or strong. And so she goes, listen up, missy. I had to hurt a lot of people to get through Dauntless Initiation and I'll do it to you too if I have to. And so then she takes off her blue jumper. She throws it at the candy boy and says, look, he's wearing blue. So he's not breaking the dress code. Now leave him be, get out of here. And so then that girl's like, ugh, whatever. And she walks off and she goes, you'd better watch your back. And Tris says, I guarantee you that I don't need to. Now scram. And she just starts walking away as well. And the candor boy's like, wait a minute, your sweatshirt. You forgot your sweatshirt. And she goes, keep it. So then she's going down another hallway all by herself. And then she's like, huh, I think I hear footsteps behind me. And then she just ignores it being like, must be getting paranoid. It's like, oh my God, Tris. If you hear footsteps, there's footsteps. You're the main character. You're not just being paranoid. So she opens a door, I guess because she's lost. She opens up a random door. She walks in, but then the lights get turned off. I don't know why she walked into the random door. I don't know why she walked into the random room. She opened up the door, trying to figure out where she was. Clearly she's not in the right place and she, she chooses to enter the room. Th- th- that makes no sense. Anyway, someone puts a hood over their head, like a sack, like a potato sack or something over her head. And she's like, oh God, not again, I'm being jumped. So she gets one arm free. She punches whoever's behind her. And then that person goes, hey, that hurt. <laughs> It's like, you've just put a sack over Triss's head. Like, yeah, she's going to punch you. Why are you getting upset? Why are you mad that she fought back? And they say, look, look, we don't, we don't want to frighten you, Triss, but we need to be anonymous. We mean you no harm. And she says, let go of me then. Who the hell are you? And they say, we are the Allegiant and we are many, yet we are no one. And it's like, oh my God, I'm laughing. And so's Triss. Triss laughs. She's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And they want to be anonymous and yet she can hear their voices. So if it's someone that she did know, surely she'd recognize them by now. She recognized that other dauntless guy. Remember that one that tried to put the bag over her face and throw her off the bridge? She recognized him by the smell of his soap. She was a little soap detective when that happened. And now these people are just talking, being like, we have to be anonymous. Hey, that hurt. So I think if she knows them, she would have recognized them. That's all I'm saying. So I'm not building up my hopes that this is going to be a huge character reveal because I don't know if it is. So then the voice says, we have heard that you are not loyal to Evelyn Johnson and her factionless lackeys. So who could it be then who's heard that? Because she hasn't really talked to that many people. She's talked to like Christina, Zeke, Uriah, Four, maybe Will's sister. And that's about it. And so Triss is like, all right, yeah, got me. She's still under the sack. She says, you got me. I'm still loyal. I'm not loyal to her. Why? And they say, because it means you want to leave. We want to ask you for a favor. We're going to have a meeting tomorrow night at midnight. We want you to bring your dauntless friends. So it's not, so it's not her dauntless friends. Who the fuck is it? Who knows? And so Tris goes, okay, well, if I'm going to see you tomorrow, why can't I see you now? And they're like, oh, you got us there, but never mind. They say, we'll see you tomorrow at midnight in the place where you made your confession. And then they run off and she gets a chance to take the sack over her head. And it's just a pillow, a blue erudite-ish pillow that says faction before blood on it. And she's like, okay, the place where you made your confession, there's only one place where that can be. Kanda headquarters where I succumbed to the truth serum. See, she did succumb to its truth serum. We do remember that. But she's like, okay, there's only one place I've ever made a confession. Where I don't think so. Didn't you just get interrogated and go under truth serum just a couple of chapters ago? It could be like, in Erudite headquarters where you're meant to be, but she's going to schlep all the way over to Candor headquarters. So maybe they're Candor people. Who knows? I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. 
Anyway, she goes back to her dorm. She finds a note from Tobias and he addresses her in Roman numerals as six. Which I don't know, is a reference to how many fears she had or some bullshit? Because he also signs off in Roman numerals as four, which was his nickname because he had four fears. I don't really. I think he's just trying to be duplicitous. He doesn't want to write his name down because then it could be used as evidence against him. And he doesn't want to write her name down. So he's calling her six, even though that's not her name. But then in the content of the letter, he says, your brother's trial will be tomorrow morning and it will be in private. So like if someone were to find this note, how hard is it to to sort of figure out who you're talking about and who you're talking to and who it's left for? Considering it's on her bedside table as well. So I don't know. I don't know why we've got this ruse. While we're all trying to be secret squirrels, when uh, who else is having a brother on trial in the morning? Anyway, he says, I can't go, but I'll get you the verdict as soon as possible. Then we can make a plan. No matter what, this will be over soon. And that's the end of the chapter. So I guess it's getting a bit more exciting. Uh, I don't know. Let me know your theories on who you think the Allegiant people are. And would you ever have sex on top of the Jay Pritzker building? Not even sex. Would you ever have a picnic on top of that metal structure? Chicago locals, let me know. And I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. Send your burning thoughts, frustrations, and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks. You can visit www.breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links, contact information, merch, and more. To support the show on Patreon and gain access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks. Ratings and reviews on your preferred podcast platform are also a fun, free way to support the show. Breaking Down Bad Books is hosted by me, Nathan Brown, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at NathanBrown90. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.